Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. In our last episode, we dove into Appalachia's opioid crisis, the epidemic within the pandemic. We spoke with experts about approaches to recovery, including medication-assisted therapy. It's a controversial but increasingly popular method of addiction recovery. And this month, the Biden administration made it easier for healthcare providers to get one of those medicines, called buprenorphine, into the hands of patients. To understand the changes better, we spoke with Sherry Hartman, the administrator for the office-based opioid treatment program in the psychiatry department of Carilion Clinic, one of Southwest Virginia's biggest hospitals. She's also an assistant professor at the Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine and one of the region's best-known voices on treating addiction. In this episode of our Hometown Stories series, Bridging the Great Health Divide, we're taking a look at how she believes these changes could go a long way to helping Appalachia. Um, well, I guess my first question is, I want to know, what was your reaction when you saw these new guidelines uh, from Health and Human Services yesterday? I'm very pleased to see the policy changes that the Biden-Harris administration has endorsed. Um I think it's open to some misunderstandings. So, um, you know, I think the devil's in the details. It's going to take a lot of education to really understand the change. But the bottom line is that this policy change will remove barriers to accessing the gold standard evidence-based practice for medically treating someone with an opioid use disorder. So when we kind of look a little bit closer into those details, it appears as though it it expands the number of people or maybe the types of people who are able to prescribe buprenorphine and the number of people that they can prescribe it to. So can you just kind of give us a um, a comparison between what it had been up until these guidelines and what it what it will be now as far as who can prescribe and how much they can prescribe? Yes, I'm glad to try to clarify this change to the extent that's possible right now. Um, Previously, under the Data 2000 Act, a person had to complete, if you were an eligible prescriber, an eight-hour training course on medication-assisted treatment in order to get approved, get a waiver, they call it, from the federal government to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, that would include physicians. The what we call advanced care practitioners like nurse practitioners and physician assistants were required to complete a 24 hour training and they need to be supervised in most settings by the appropriate uh, physician who's qualified. Now, under this policy change, the way I read this change is that you could be exempted from the training requirement. So um, physicians and advanced care practitioners 
can apply to SAMHSA for a waiver, but that can be issued to you with a valid license and DEA number. You can get what they call the XDEA number assigned to you without completing the training that typically had been required. It does come with limitations though. Uh, someone who gets this kind of exempted waiver who did not complete the required level of training will have a limit of 30 persons to whom they can prescribe buprenorphine um, in order to treat their opioid use disorder. So as it stands right now, if you're a physician who's done that eight hour training or a nurse practitioner who's done that 24 hour training, do those folks um, have a cap on the number of people that they can prescribe to? Yes, they do. It's so complicated, but um, the first year after you complete the training, uh, you have a cap of 30 persons, and that's why they set the cap at 30. Um, then with experience, you can apply, it's called an NOI that you submit um, in order to raise your limit to 100, but you have to demonstrate and get peers to verify that you've been working with patients for a period of a year, treating them with buprenorphine. Um, you can apply for and obtain uh, from SAMHSA the increase in limit to 100. And then certain specialists, uh, my husband, Dr. David Hartman, for example, has um, an addiction medicine uh, qualification. If you're a physician with an addiction medicine qualification, you can actually treat up to 275 patients. Um, if you're a specialist, you don't have to have that kind of specialization, but uh, certain extra training specialization uh, years of experience are needed to go to 275. This is all very fascinating. And so when, when you are given the cap ostensibly, somebody who's taking buprenorphine or MAT, they're going to be on it for a long period of time. So my understanding is once you prescribe it to somebody, they stay on that medication, they count as part of your, towards your cap, right? So ostensibly you you could meet that cap and then you would just sit there for a long time, right? Yeah, that is really a problem is that um, it is a chronic disease of addiction, the opioid use disorder. And because of that, it's most likely that you'll be on what's called a maintenance program. It's actually encouraged medically that you think about that, that you think about long-term management of your disease so um, a successful patient who um, you know, is well stabilized on buprenorphine uh, could be maintained on buprenorphine you know, for a decade or more. Um, we see some very, very high functioning uh, patients who are, fall into that category, but that takes up one of your spots. Um, you know, if you have a cap of 100, that counts just as much as someone who comes weekly and you're trying to stabilize on the medication. And now I think as I was kind of scanning the guidelines and picking up on the on the language that I was familiar with and could follow, it also seems like they may be eliminating a component that um, requires your patient to participate in counseling. What is your understanding of that change? Yes, uh, that's an important detail. I have to tell you that um, the evidence really supports that a patient get this comprehensive approach that includes therapy and we include care coordination. We really believe in the benefit of that comprehensive approach. We have what's called the office-based opioid treatment program and it's based on that comprehensive model. But 
What they didn't want is to say it's a one size fits all, that everyone needs comprehensive care and that you can't access it if a prescriber doesn't have right in their office the advantage of having these other kinds of services available to the patients. And as I understand it is this is kind of a trial period that after a year they will reevaluate how they've written this uh, change in policy. The way that you read it right now, it sounds like you're um, trying to kind of still piece it together. Are the guidelines clear enough, do you think, and are they going to make the kind of impact on the opioid crisis um, that you think we need right now? Well, time will tell. I think it's good that they're reevaluating it. I think there is great potential in this change. I do think that the additional training certification requirement was uh, a barrier to getting enough prescribers there. We have people in underserved areas um, who might be in a, in a rural setting and don't have access to the full complement of services that we would provide here in Roanoke. And you don't want people just because of their location, their geography, to not have access to a life-saving treatment. The benefits of buprenorphine are so powerfully life-saving that you wanna make access to this medication as readily available as possible. And I do think this will go a long way toward making that happen. Bringing it back here locally, I know Carillion now has the bridge program. It took a little bit of while, uh, you know, Carillion like other places to kind of uh, establish that infrastructure um, to incorporate MAT. What kind of effect locally do you think that these uh, guideline changes as they've been written right now, what kind of effect locally here in Carillion in the Roanoke Valley um, and maybe even a little bit, you know, broader into Southwest Virginia, what kind of effects are you expecting from this? In terms of the ED Bridge to Treatment program, that was an effort to make rapid access to treatment available to persons at an ideal portal of entry into care, which is the emergency department. Emergency departments anywhere in Virginia are able to, and actually across the country, to abide by the three-day rule. They can initiate buprenorphine right in the ED. That's been true. Uh, this policy change wasn't needed in order to initiate buprenorphine in the emergency department. Uh, they can do that for three days in a row without being wavered. Um, what could happen now is that we could actually replicate our local ED bridge to treatment program that gets patients at that teachable moment into treatment at a moment of readiness more quickly by making it easier for ED doctors to become wavered instead of having to take eight hours of a course. And the benefit of the ED doctor getting wavered is that they now with that waiver would be able to write a prescription. And that becomes a kind of medical bridge between the moment of the acute care crisis to getting into chronic treatment where they can achieve recovery. Do you, do you have any concerns? Do you think that that training, um, do you have any concerns that people who now would be able to prescribe and get that waiver to prescribe um, would be missing out on something really important by not doing that training? I am a proponent of training. <laughs> I would like to see the training in the med schools and have all of that training under your belt, you know, as no matter what kind of field of medicine you go into because the disease of addiction is so pervasive and unfortunately opioid use disorder is so prevalent. Um, so I'm in favor of training, 
um, I would like to see us step up medical training on addiction and on the treatment of opioid use disorders. But this specific cumbersome kind of training certification requirement, I think poses unnecessary barriers. So just to make sure I fully understand what can happen now is a doctor and the ED when somebody comes in because they're they're experiencing uh, issues associated with uh, SUD, they they can now prescribe beyond that three days or whatever it is that that person's in the hospital. So they can write them a prescription that they can have when they leave the hospital and, and apply for a waiver. Um, so that and that's probably going to be the biggest confusion out there is people will think, oh, the waiver's gone. Actually, the waiver's not gone. That would require a legislative act, an act of Congress, literally. <laughs> so um, they still have to apply through the NOI process, the notification of intent to SAMHSA and get waivered. But when they do that, they are exempted from having to complete, if you're a physician, the eight hours of required training. They still have to wait to get their ex-DEA number issued to them from the DEA, though, in order to prescribe, but not to do that three-day initiation. Does this mean also that um, maybe some primary care doctors could also apply for that waiver? Yes. Um, a lot of primary care doctors have entered into this field. Um, you can actually be in any field of medicine and be eligible to, be, to become waivered to prescribe buprenorphine. So that can happen right out of the primary care physician's office. And I can see a strong preference by patients to being able to go to their primary care doctor for uh, management of their opioid use disorder. And it's wonderful because then it can be integrated with other kinds of medical care that the patient might need. Is it your understanding that the folks that you work with in the bridge program, although, you know, if they get this waiver that they no longer will necessarily have to offer counseling, that my understanding is, is that still would be part of, of the MO that you guys are operating. Is that still something that you would follow, even though it wouldn't necessarily be required? There are incentives for doing that in the state of Virginia for being uh, what they call the preferred OBOT model. Um, so um, there are billing codes that are special for a program like ours that's comprehensive. So there, there's a billing kind of incentivization of being a comprehensive care interdisciplinary model. And I'm really glad that Virginia endorses that model. It is a best practice. You know, if you can offer that, that is preferred that you have a comprehensive care approach. Also, you have to keep in mind that there are a set of regulations issued by the Virginia Board of Medicine. And they built in there that um, you, you need to link a patient up with uh, counseling if you are prescribing buprenorphine. My last specific question is, I know that among the community at large and perhaps within the medical community, um, although I think the acceptance and uh, belief in uh, medication-assisted therapy is growing, it has remained controversial because a lot of people see it as substitution from one drug to another. Um, but as far as the medical community goes, where have you seen the attitude towards MAT, such as buprenorphine, shift over the years? What what are you anticipating? I, I know I can gauge what your what your hope is, but what are you anticipating moving forward with with attitudes within and without within and outside of the medical community with regards to medication like this? In the medical field, I would say there is certainly a growing understanding 
of medications for opioid use disorder, that three medications have been endorsed by the FDA for treating opioid use disorder for an office-based setting. Uh, buprenorphine is considered the gold standard and it's getting more and more widely accepted that this certainly is an appropriate and effective medical treatment in the context you know, of hopefully a comprehensive program um, for helping someone manage the chronic disease of opioid use disorder. You know, it's a really basic shift that I see happening where more and more people understand addiction as a biological psychosocial disease. It's a chronic disease. Um, it's not a moral failing. Nobody wakes up and chooses to have this disease. It does develop as other chronic diseases do and warrants medical diagnosis and treatment. I lied. I do have one more question. I spoke with Dr. Trussman about this not too long ago, but if you want to just speak very briefly about kind of what you've seen, what you have seen come out of the bridge program um, at Carillion and since that infrastructure was instituted and uh, that, that program was put together, how successful do you feel that it has been over its course? It's been tremendously successful. It is actually an example of the benefit of training um, you know, these are physicians who've completed their medical training. So for them to get the eight hours of an immersion in learning how to treat the opioid use disorder, they've actually learned tremendously about this disease. And so we've seen a wonderful culture shift in our ED where the doctors feel really better about working with our patients because now they have tools that they understand and know that they can use for effectively getting a patient onto the path of better health. So, um, you know, we, we've seen tremendous success. Our rates have varied, um, but I would say it hovers between 70% and 78% effectiveness, where before Dr. Burton predicted it was probably closer to 10% of patients who were presenting with an acute symptom of an opioid use disorder were actually getting into treatment. So it, it's been a leap in improvement in getting patients into treatment and engaged in treatment. 80% um, of them remained in treatment uh, through the first month. Um, and we'll, we'll look at longer retention in our studies, but um, it's been very, very successful here at Carillion. I have to also um, point out the role of the peer recovery specialists, the role that they play in helping support a patient through these difficult transitions in care. A peer is somebody with lived experience. Um, they don't necessarily have an opioid use disorder, but they've struggled with uh, some kind of mental health or substance use disorder. And they build on their experience to be more effective in helping a patient believe in themselves and trust that they can benefit from treatment. Um, so the twice as many of our patients who, are get, who get linked with a peer get into treatment in comparison to those who don't have the benefit of a peer. And it sounds like based on the research that I was doing yesterday, these changes in guidelines, I think it seems like they were something that was being floated by the previous administration and then put on hold by the Biden administration. Um, can you maybe just walk us through that, that timeline a little bit as well? I think it happened right before the end of, uh, you know, the previous president's uh, term in January. And, uh, you know, we were kind of dancing in the street, yay, this change is going to happen, and it's going to increase access to this important treatment. 
But as it ended up, um, because it takes an act of Congress to remove the waiver, um, it looks to me like the Biden-Harris administration figured out that you could still require the waiver the way um, the previous um, acts of Congress had required, but then just specifically remove the training requirement. That is helpful. I appreciate that. You are a treasure trove of information, so I really appreciate everything that you've shared and, and walked through in a really comprehensive, easy to understand way. Um, is there anything else um, that I didn't prompt with the question about this change that you would like to add? I really appreciate the opportunity just to educate the public about the disease of addiction and specifically about opioid use disorders. The driving fact that led to adopting a significant policy change was the increase in fatal overdoses that happened during 2020 that has happened during the pandemic. The CDC right now is projecting that the 12 months leading up to September 2020 will have on record the highest number of fatal drug overdoses that this country has ever seen, and it will exceed 90,000 individuals um, you know, with addiction. And so it's, it's a very deadly disease, and it's really going to take all of us to better understand its development and its treatment and to remove the stigma that is associated with this disease. That's the most important thing is to remove stigma. And I think this policy makes strides in that direction. You know, not only are you broadening the base of who can prescribe for the disease, but I think you're helping the, the community at large understand that access to medication for an opioid use disorder is important, is relevant, because it does respond to treatment and it is a medical disease. Do you see these guideline changes as having any particularly stronger effect on a rural versus an urban community? Because, you know, as we've seen, obviously Appalachia has been among the significant, um, you know, densest concentrations of some of the, uh, uh, you know, addiction. Do you think that these guideline changes have, a, have an ability to significantly affect urban versus rural or both similarly? Yes, um, that, that was a point I was trying to make earlier. The Probably the biggest benefit of this policy change will be to those regions that are underserved um, and especially rural areas where you have fewer waiver prescribers. Um, there's a sparse number of prescribers in certain regions in Virginia and throughout the country. Um, so they are most likely to benefit from this policy change, absolutely. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by myself, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Raquelny. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.